Okay, okay. cool. So uh, we should introduce ourselves. I'll go first. Uh, hi, I'm Paige. I'm Chris. All right, and this is our new podcast, episode one of Animates. Um, which uh, <laughs> not pirate themed, uh, unfortunately. Um, so just like a little bit of information, since this is the first episode, uh, Chris and I have been friends since college. And we both really love cartoons. Um, I personally have been really into cartoons since I was a kid. I always watched a ton of cartoons. Um, but it was really in college that I like fell in love with cartoons in the way that I am now and began to really appreciate a lot of the like artistry and depth of storytelling that's present even in a lot of children's cartoons. So that's part of what made me really want to do this podcast. I feel that I'm the same way. I feel before <laughs> college that I maybe, I don't know, I didn't have the tools or like the mental framework to look at cartoons mm -hmm. as serious pieces of work and I started getting a sense of that for whatever reason because it was talking to other people about like the nostalgia of cartoons but also hearing other people's ideas on like oh why this cartoon was revolutionary or like how it's got really serious adult themes and uh -huh. I would occasionally rewatch things and would see oh of course that makes total yes. sense. And I feel like that really, that whole thing was catapulted into me really caring about cartoons when things like Adventure Time came around. Yeah, because, I was about to say the same thing. Because those shows, I feel like, galvanized that intellectual sense about cartoons. Mm -hmm. And, I, okay, I guess I should say that should we, um, this is probably going to be like a, at least PG-13 experience. Yeah, um, definitely. We're probably going to cuss some swears. And sex. And... Yeah. Like, we'll be talking about themes that are adult themes. Yes, absolutely. Or, like, you know, to sex and stuff. Little did you know those exist in your childhood cartoons. Oh, yes. Yeah. They definitely do. <laughs> yeah. So, like, yeah, this is probably, like, if... Like, we've successfully put this podcast on iTunes, and you're finding it that way. It'll probably have a little, like, E next to it or whatever. Um, you know, just for, like, swearing and discussion of adult themes. So, like, if you want to listen to this with your kids, like, maybe don't. <laughs> like, or, as a parent. <laughs> or maybe do and just expose them to the serious intellectual quality that comes along with cussing. True, true. <laughs> yeah, but okay, so part of like what you can expect from this podcast like in the future um, is so I like by trade am like a political scientist and Chris is um, a psychologist. Uh, we don't really like know that much about the craft of animation like we will be discussing things about like the animation style and things like that but we are going to be doing a lot of deep dive critical analysis and there's going to be a lot of discussion of 
psychological themes and political themes um, in these shows. Would you say that's correct, Chris? Yeah, I particularly am not looking to do... I'm not a clinical psychologist, so I'm not going to be like, let's look at Dee Dee's neuroses or let's look at like the <laughs> Oedipal complex that exists in X, Y, show. show. Mm-hmm. I'm more interested in like develop, like, for example, how in the first show we're going to talk about how like parenting styles exhibit themselves or mm-hmm. cultural social messages that get sent through stuff or stereotypes like social psychology and Evo psychology is my trade. So that's a lot of my particular focus. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I like, I personally identify as a socialist. Chris, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but like, would you say you're at least socialist leaning in that's, your politics? Yeah, that's fair. That's, yeah. that's a fair assessment. Yeah. So you'll probably hear me say the word like bourgeois a fair amount of times. And pretty much every episode, there will be some mention made of like capitalism or class structures or the messaging in cartoons that has to do with that or that subverts it. Um, Because I'm really interested in those themes. And I'll, I'll talk more about like uh, social justice or sociological type phenomena in, in cartoons, because that's what is interesting to me. And I actually will probably end up, I don't know, I I like to do that, but I like to use, instead of political science as my springboard, I like to use psychology as the springboard, but we're both springing into the same pool. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, the very first show we're going to do here for this episode is pretty fruitful ground for that. Um, We're doing Rugrats. Which hopefully everybody should, you know, recognize this theme song as we start. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you playing it? Or? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I don't hear it on my end, so I didn't know if you are going to stick it in in the end. I don't know. Edit this out. <laughs> um, but yeah, I regrets. Um, really big show for anyone... Uh, so for context, I'm 25, Chris is 27. Um, so really anyone in our age group and a little bit older and a little bit younger is probably really familiar with this show. Like it's one of the most seminal shows of the 1990s. Um, it was a Nickelodeon cartoon. Uh, Chris, do you have the, the airing dates in front of you? Sorry, I was just letting the uh, the theme finish. Okay. So I do have those. So I did a little bit of digging on dem- like demographics of the show. So the show was created by Arlene Klasky, Gabor Supo, Supo, yeah, yeah, Supo, and Paul Germain, and it ran on Nickelodeon between nineteen ninety one and 2002 so yeah it had a very it had a long run and it had a lot of different writers there's not particularly like one main writer for the show the creators mm-hmm. contributed as like sparingly over the run of the show but it was a lot of a lot of people doing that the music mm-hmm. which is particularly distinctive distinctive right uh very Clingy piano, 
very synthy, often like references to like the style of music in the early 90s was Mm -hmm. composed mainly by Mark Mothersbaugh and Dennis M. Hannigan for like the entire show. Yeah, and you see, um, like, especially in the earlier seasons, you just see Mark Mothersbaugh's name. Um, And then getting into the end of season three, you start to see Dennis Hannigan show up. Um, But sometimes instead of Dennis Hannigan, you see uh, another Mothersbaugh. So I don't know if it's like a coincidence in names or if it's Mark's brother or what or husband or something. But sometimes there's a Mothersbaugh duo creating music. He had a Mothersbaugh had a production company and his Mm. production company handled the show. So it's probably a spouse or a family member. Yeah, seems like it. Seems like it. Um, Over over the show's long run, it was highly acclaimed. It gained 20 awards during the 13 year run it had. And it included like daytime Emmys, Kids Choice Awards. It's got a Hollywood Hollywood star fame so if you want to go like check that out in la you can uh interesting point it was nominated or won an emmy every year it ran since 1992 so it was also nickelodeon's top rated show on the whole network from 1995 to 2002 so it cannot really be understated how popular the show was for the network Oh, yeah. I think, like, you can definitely say that Rugrats is really, like, what put Nickelodeon, like, on the map as a cartoon channel, really, you know, because, like, they had other cartoons running at that time. Like, for example, you have things like Doug and uh, Rocco's Modern Life um, running at the same time, but none of the cartoons that predated Rugrats, like really had the the popularity and the cultural impact that Rugrats did. Like, I, I think you could say that you couldn't really have like something like SpongeBob that's so wildly popular and runs for so long um, on Nickelodeon without first having had Rugrats. Yeah, it was certainly a trailblazer in that regard. And the cast like is also very distinctive for their performances so mm-hmm. most of the cast is female. Um, every every baby is voiced by a by a woman, mm-hmm. and Tommy's voiced by Elizabeth Daly. Like very distinct performance there. Chucky mm-hmm. was voiced by Christine Cavanaugh. Both Lil and Phil, the twins, were voiced by Kath Susie, or I think mm-hmm. that's short for Kathy. Uh, Angelica was voiced by Cheryl Chase and sorry you'll probably notice that um, I'm going over the like main cast of characters too if you don't remember who these mm-hmm. people are you will remember soon enough yeah um, something like of note is that uh, just by watching the show enough you can see that um they're already doing a thing that we're really familiar with in uh, like more modern contemporary cartoons, which is that Kath uh, Susie, who voices Phil and Lil, they get a ton of mileage out of her as a voice actress, like lots of small parts or like unnamed characters 
in the show are voiced by her. And if you watch it and get familiar to, with her voice, you'll begin to notice her other places in the show besides just the twins. Yeah, which is something I didn't notice as a child, but I definitely hear now. Yeah, um, for sure. Dee Dee, the mother, uh, Tommy's mom, is voiced by Melanie Chart- Chartoff. Stu, Tommy's father, is voiced by Jack Riley. Charlotte, who is Angelica's mother, she is a she got round. She was in a number of different shows. Uh, her name mm. is Tess McNeely. That sounds familiar. Uh, Drew and Chaz, who are Angelica and Chucky's dads, respectively, were voiced by Michael Bell. And Wow, really? They're the yeah. same person? Yeah, yeah, huh. yeah, yeah, yeah. I did not uh, notice that. Chaz's voice is so distinctive. And it's so nasally that it makes sense mm-hmm. that he could get away doing both. Yeah, for sure. Uh, for Grandpa sure. Lou, a huge part of the show, uh, was voiced by David Doyle until his death. Um, oh. Yeah. He died late in the show's run. Rip. Um Susie, so the first the the first black like main cast character on the show is voiced by Cree Summer. And Cree Summer is very well traveled between Nickelodeon and Cartoon Network for her voice acting. She voice acted a lot of african-american characters um in shows yeah and her voice is just really great you know she has this very like sort of rich um like uh gravelly voice that is super distinctive and it's one of those voices that you hear all the time and you're like who is that who is that she's been in other stuff too you know just because her voice sounds so great Right, and I'm pretty, I'm pretty, almost 100% positive that she voiced, she had a part on Kids Next Door, too. Oh, yeah, I think, like, I didn't watch enough Kids Next Door that I can really pull that out, but that's, like, I think I remember that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Abigail, number, she was number five, Abigail Abby Lincoln, voiced by Cree Summer. Yeah, So she's. I, I recognized her voice a lot in shows that I used to watch. Oh, yeah. For sure. For sure. Um, uh, pretty prolific voice actress. Some interesting notes on their production schedule, because you probably, as a child, if you're my age, noticed that like they aired a lot of reruns, uh, just sort of like all over the place with when new episodes came out. Um, it started airing the same day as Ren and Stimpy and Doug. So it Holy shit, really? Yeah, it premiered in between the two. Um, it's really weird to think about Ren and Stimpy and Rugrats premiering together. Well, <laughs> like, um, but they did, but they did. The original three-season run was from 91 to 95, and they went on hiatus, after that. And what happened is that they just ran like almost constant reruns of the Rugrats. And so people like me got really into it. Mm -hmm. And they uh, basically got such a following, like the ratings were so high for their reruns that they commissioned more episodes 
from the creators and they returned in 97 and in 98 their first movie came out so they came back and then they almost instantly dropped a movie on people and that's mm-hmm. where Tommy's brother Dill gets born um, I think that's where Kimmy comes in Kimmy's a little bit later or is she the second Rugrats movie I think she's the second Rugrats film because I think um, they go to Japan related to Chaz's wedding, I think. Yeah. In, yeah. And in the I second think Paris is involved there too. Yeah. Yeah. And so, for example, I was born in 1993. So as I watched the first three seasons of this show, you know, I would hit episodes that I recognized, but a lot of them weren't familiar to me. Whereas when I hit season four, I almost immediately started to recognize a really large proportion of the episodes. I got about a mix. I I got a pretty, pretty decent mix of both. Hmm. Um, so it, Ran the show ran um, until 2004. That's when they stopped airing new episodes, and then they, it was removed from TV completely in 2007. So when I was in high school, and God, I, it was the eighth longest running animated show ever, tied with King of the Hill. Wow. Yeah. Right. King of the Hill had 13 seasons, by the way. Jesus, yeah. I think it might oh, be. Oh, um, for context, Rugrats had nine seasons over the course of its run. Yeah, it had nine seasons with a highly variable episode count for each season. Some mm-hmm. seasons it's like 36, other ones it's like 17. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, Oh, go ahead. <laughs> devour this little delicious piece of nostalgia. Amanda Bynes did a retrospective on the Rugrats run in 2001. Oh, my God. Uh, the Amanda show. Like, back when she was famous, she she was like, this is how the Rugrats have changed our lives in 2001. Oh, my oh God. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's wild. Oh, it's man. Crazy. Like, something, while, while we're talking about, like, facts about the show... I feel like, did you get off all of the, like, major facts that you wanted to yeah, get that's, in? Yeah, that's, that's pretty much yeah. everything that I thought was notable. I feel like a good springboard from, like, just that information into our discussion is um, something that I noticed about the animation, uh, which is that they very clearly received a lot more money to make the show beginning with season four. Because if you watch the last episode of season three and the first episode of season four in succession, it is markedly different. Like, first of all, it gets way cleaner way more consistent and there's suddenly significantly more uh effects with light um there's a lot more shadows and in that first episode of season four you even have a scene of like a fire burning in the basement so they can clearly like show off like look at what we can do with the light now look at all of our shadows (laughs) right everybody has a shadow on their face right now it has so much depth to it, you know, and the backgrounds get way more detailed and stuff, um, which I thought was really interesting because was season four part of the original run or was that the beginning of the like revival when they commissioned more episodes? That was that they started airing season four in 97. OK, yeah. So that makes sense. So not only did were the reruns so popular that they commissioned more episodes, but they gave them more money to make them clearly. Yeah, that had to have been, 
what happened. And it makes sense because at that point, Nickelodeon had a lot of data on how popular the show was. So they were willing mm-hmm. to pour more money into it. And the studio that the creators ran would also have like gained a reputation by that point. So they also would have advanced in their capabilities. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, and I think it was, you said that one of the three creators after season four left the show, right? Yeah. So after the original, it said after the original run and like into the fourth season, all three creators were working on the show. And then the, uh, just for some context, the dude who left was Paul German. Hmm. The one with the more normal last name. So he <laughs> he left. And it was just Arlene and Gabor who were working on the show from that point forward. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting to me that, like, okay, even though two of the showrunners are men, like one of the showrunners for Rugrats in the 90s is a woman, right? Well, I hate, um, I mean, I, okay. So I feel like that was more amenable maybe to network executive standards because it was a show about babies. Mm, maybe, yeah. Because I'm just thinking about um, like on Cartoon Network, which the whole point is cartoons. The first female showrunner on Cartoon Network was Rebecca Sugar of Steven Universe. Wait, no way. Yes. Yes. Like, at least least solo showrunner. I don't know if there were other shows with multiple showrunners that had a woman, but I know in terms of at least solo female showrunner, Rebecca Sugar is the first one. That's nuts. Yeah. Yeah. Cartoon Network has had historically and still does some really bad problems with sexism. But this is a Nickelodeon show, so we'll address Cartoon Network sexism on a different episode when we cover a Cartoon Network show. Right. So apparently Nickelodeon is much better. Who knew? Yeah, it would appear. <laughs> um, and the show itself is just rife with delicious, delicious stuff. Um, oh, yeah. So Paige and I have been rewatching the the show to become reacquainted because, boy, wouldn't it be bad if we just relied on our aging memories to <laughs> pull this stuff from the ether? Oh, mm-hmm. I swear. And rewatching now with our adult sort of like intellectual frameworks brings a lot of interesting stuff that we never would have seen as kids. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Even just stuff like when you see things written down in the background. You know, there are all kinds of really funny jokes in the show that as a kid, like maybe we didn't notice them because we couldn't read (laughs) or like just be because we were so focused on the story happening in the foreground. And those jokes usually weren't for us. Like, for example, the one that you pointed out and which I looked for when I saw that episode, the Playboy magazine that shows up. (laughs) So, um, the reason that the kids are tearing into one of the dad's offices is not important. What's important for this is that they're going through somebody's desk and out of the desk, like it's on screen for like a second. It's so mm-hmm. quick, but um, out comes a kid pulls a magazine and they drop it to the ground. And it's got like this woman in um, buddy ears. ears. And clearly, like, a bikini top. 
Yeah, yeah. she's blonde. She's got a great big smile, you know, on her face. Like hourglass figure and the bunny ears. And that, like, bunny ears just screams, just screams Playboy. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Like, it's clearly, it's Playboy. What else would it be, you know? Um so there's obviously, like, we all know that kids' cartoons contain adult jokes um, that fly just fly over kids' heads so that parents don't kill themselves while they're watching cartoons with their kids, right? And Rugrats has a ton. Um, you know, you see a Playboy in the background, or there's, like, masturbation jokes. Oh, and, my God. Delivered by the children themselves. Yeah. <laughs> so the one, the one that Paige is referring to is there's an episode that you might remember where Tommy gets this clown called Boppo, and mm-hmm. Boppo is one of those inflatable punch clowns that, funny enough, that it can't was, fall over. You know, it can't, yeah, it can't fall over. And funny enough, some child studies done on aggression used a similar clown like that in the real world and Mm -hmm. what researchers found out is that kids who engage kids who watch parents punch the clown become more aggressive and will like physically assault the clown (laughs) so it was one of the first studies showing that like kids will mimic aggressive behavior in adults so wild fun side note but so Mm -hmm. the clown is called boppo and chucky gets really into this this clown super um, into Bobbo. he he will not just stop punching this clown and so much so that he asked tommy if he can take it home and mm-hmm. tommy feeling guilty says yes you can take home the clown and cut to a later part of the episode chucky is like to the neglect um to the neglect of his friends Mm-hmm. He's just playing with Boppo and all like Lil Phil and Tommy want to go do something else. And yeah, Chucky's not even with them. He's like at his house in his right. room playing the with ki- the clown. The kids are in the bathroom and I think it's like Lil. It's Phil. It, okay. It's Phil is just like. A boy sh- his age should be outside, like not in his room by himself. Bop at his Boppo. Right. Yeah. Uh, a, a kid his age should be. Playing with his friends, not sitting inside his room all day, bopping his boppo. <laughs> and I I couldn't believe it. Um, oh, my God. It was fantastic. I had to pause and rewatch it because I couldn't believe that it was so clearly a, a masturbation joke. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, There are other, like, kids' cartoons, especially from the late 90s, that I think went, like, a little overboard with the sly, you know, sexual humor. Like, especially if you think about even movies like Shrek, like, was, like, hardcore enough with the uh, sly sexual humor that even as a small child, it was like, I think that's inappropriate. Like, I think there's something being implied here. (laughs) Like, you know, but Rugrats, it's there. But it's subtle enough, you know, that it's not just, like, beating you over the head with the fact that it's getting away with these, like, sexual jokes. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's, I like it. I like it. I like it, too. It's a good balance. Um, So, obviously, the show's format is, just as a reminder, if you haven't rewatched it, which you totally should, it's on Hulu. um, Yeah, it's good. Is 
Like it mostly centers on like Tommy's house and Tommy's family, the pickles mm-hmm. and all these other families. Okay. Not all these other, it's like three other families. Yeah. Other but they family. all live in the neighborhood. Like they all live in the same neighborhood on the same street and they get together and like our friends and their babies hang out and their babies rack up an unbelievable amount of collateral damage. Oh my God. Just the property damage alone would have all of these families bankrupt. Like even it's like the second episode, Tommy destroys an entire French restaurant, like destroys it. (laughs) Right. And they, it seems almost every episode they're destroying the kitchen or the living room. Oh yeah, for sure. And then by the next episode, everything is replaced. Mm -hmm. So it's, I, I realize that that's one of those suspend your disbelief things that like yeah. those props only exist to get broken. But mm-hmm. still, as an adult, I'm like, wow. Yeah, there was an episode I was watching last night where uh, they think the sky is falling. So Angelica declares herself president of the world and decides that, of course, what you're going to do is destroy the house. We're going to make a pool in the house. We're going to turn the hose on in the house. We're going to go through every cabinet and throw everything all over the floor. Like, and I just, as an adult, was sitting there watching this scene just going, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, just because of the damage they were doing. You know, that makes, uh, that brings up a point And that this show is totally immersion breaking because a baby mega mom like Dee Dee hasn't installed baby locks on every surface of the home. Yeah, that's true. Well, that's something we were talking about, um, like, the other day, is that this show, like, has to exist in the world of the early 90s. Like, it cannot function in, like, a modern time. Because Dee Dee, like, has this very sort of, like, bourgeois anxiety about being the right kind of mom, right? right. About, like, she she's that archetype. She reads all the parenting books. Well, this is what Libshit says. I don't know. Oh, I have all the facts off the top of my head. I am parenting correctly, right? Right. right. So to build this from the ground up for context, we've determined that, and this is, like, we, we fact-checked it, the show takes place in California. And yeah. yeah. They t- keep it vague, and sometimes it'll, like, snow there, but it's certainly in Southern California. And um, we determine that by culture. Um, they travel, and their distance to, like, the ocean and the Grand Canyon puts them in the Southwest United States. Um, mm-hmm. So there's really just no getting around that it's California. And, I mean, yeah. you you see that in the character's behavior, Um Dee Dee gets free avocado swirl ice cream in the, in 91, 91. Um, if anybody was talking about avocados in the early nineties, it was people in California. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Um, The, so the DeVille's Lil and Phil's parents, uh, you may remember Betty who <laughs> is simultaneously awesome, but also a caricature of like a second wave feminist. Yeah, um, for sure. She's wearing like the headband constantly. She's got the sweatshirt with the Venus symbol in pink on it. Um, <laughs> she, she never looks like she's not about ready to go exercise. And she, um, very deep gravelly voice for a woman frequently engages in like, 
stereotypically masculine roles in the home. Like she fixes stuff for Dee Dee pretty frequently. And she's always talking about getting a hot cup of Java. Yeah, cup of Joe. <laughs> That's um, what she calls it. Yeah. Right, right, and um, so that that like you can see it in the architecture of the houses. Like they've got clay tile roofs. Um, they're always outside, implying that the weather is almost always nice. Um, right. So yeah, think about. California is being like a trailblazer for a lot of cultural trends because they mm-hmm. are like they are oh That's frequently yeah undeniable in like cultural history and you see Dee Dee's parenting particularly a reliance on videotapes books therapists um, you see her as sort of this prototype for what spreads to the East Coast and eventually to like almost everywhere outside of the South, right? Mm-hmm. Like I want to parent. And even the- in the South too, really. Like I'm going to parent correctly. Like, like this is the right way to be a parent. There are rules that I need to follow. Well, and you could say that the concept of correct parenting really came into being at that mm-hmm. time. And that's partially because of how psychologists were studying child development because for the first time, like empirically, you were getting data that suggested like, oh, this is very harmful to children. Yeah. So the next logical step is that if it's harmful, it is bad. So don't do it. Mm-hmm. And you see like an obsession with books, with Dr. Lipschitz or like <laughs> other therapists and... Dee Dee is overall like a very concerned, attentive mother, but um, the babies constantly serve as a foil to that, which is cool because she's got these preconceived notions and Lipschitz has these preconceived notions of how like child ought to behave. And it's kind of this like this intellectual perspective of the parents versus this very like visceral uh experience-based interaction of, like, the babies. And she's like, I'm yeah. worried about Ty- like uh, Tommy being sad. And then he does something to show them that, oh, you really don't have to overcomplicate it. Like, all you have to do is, like, love the kid. or some, Yeah, give like- him a hug, you know? <laughs> like, um, but yeah, like, so um, that leads back into, like, what I was saying about how this can only exist in the world of early 90s because the kind of parent that Dee Dee is and Chaz is also this, um, you know, this very, like, hyper-attentive, like, helicopter parent, super mom style, she would, in 2018, never, ever not have every surface in her home child-locked and child-proof. You see bookcases in the background that have sharp corners with nothing on them to pat it. She would never do that. Frequently, the kids are just in the backyard by themselves. There are no adults in the backyard. A mom like Dee Dee today would never let kids play outside without being there. You know, so it shows like a transition between two styles of parenting, um, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, and she... Granted, a lot of times the kids are alone because the kids have the intelligence of five-year-olds when they're just yeah. one. Yeah. Um, 
Like, the show definitely portrays its characters as, like, Angelica has the intelligence of a seven-year-old. Do not let, like, her three-year-old age fool you. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, because the show doesn't actually work if they're actually as, like, intelligent and capable of kids actually that age, right? Like, nothing happens. Like, they don't understand object permanence. And so, like, you know... I was about to say that if you look at all these psychological tests of development, these kids have got it all. They've got abstract thinking. They've Mm -hmm. got object permanence. They've got um, theory of mind. Like, they have all of these things that you don't develop. the, The ability to conceptualize death and grief. Right? Like, there's a whole episode about it, um, which, like, Chucky is the grieving party, and that really says a lot because they haven't out-and-outed, like, stated that his mom is dead yet at this point, but clearly we know that it is if we've been paying attention. And so he has, like, a pet bug that dies, and, like, he doesn't handle it well. And, like, all the kids seem to be, like, they describe death, it's, like, when you go to sleep forever, you know, um, and they seem to like conceptualize that like the bug will not wake up and they're trying to like get Chucky to like recognize it instead of being in denial. Like it's a very like emotionally complex episode of the show, really, um, but definitely shows like really a child can't really like conceptualize death until they're like eight or nine years old. <laughs> right, right. They can understand they won't be around anymore, but they don't understand mm-hmm. the concept of death. Yes, exactly. So these kids are very advanced, which partially explains how they're able to destroy so many things. Right? Um, Everything they touch. So other interesting cultural notes is that, like, (laughs) you know that this is the early 90s because you see Zen everything. Like, Zen (laughs) Zen of barbecue. (laughs) Like, the Zen of barbecue. The Zen of lawn care. Like, Drew, or sorry, Stu, pulls out all these books on this stuff. And (laughs) I kind of think that relates to their kind of, like, bougie existence where they're trying to rely on somewhat exotic um, knowledge to improve their Mm -hmm. life. Mm-hmm. Um, because like a bougie existence like that is kind of devoid of culture as like, compared- okay, let's like, can we talk about bouginess for a minute, please? <laughs> okay. 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 Yeah. I guess like, because if we're not careful, that can become a meaningless word. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So like bourgeois in this context, we're, we're going to talk about bourgeois meaning, um, sort of a middle-class existence and the types of attitudes and cultural anxieties that accompany that kind of existence, right? So when I say, like, Didi has bourgeois anxiety, like, mothers of, like, poor mothers are not obsessed with correct parenting and making a one-year-old's birthday party perfect, in the way that Dee Dee is, right? And very wealthy mothers aren't concerned in that way either because they have an army of childcare staff. So it's a very middle-class thing that you see in the very first episode. They're throwing a first birthday party for Tommy and Dee Dee is losing her fucking 
mind. She has so much stuff. She has a cake. She has puppeteers. She has so much stuff for this one-year-old's birthday party, right? right? And is so anxious that not every – and literally says that it has to be perfect and is so anxious about it not turning out perfect. And you see that whenever they travel, she carries a huge bag of diapers, bottles, books, toys, medicines. Um, it's a running gag in the show that yeah. whenever Dee Dee is handing off her kid to somebody else, she like has a litany of things she tells the person about Tommy and his diet yeah. and his sleep and like all these different things. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, like, even if his own father and grandfather try and take him somewhere, she's like, "Do you have wipes and diapers and bottles and his rice cracker and his teething rings and like all of this stuff?" So, um, yeah, it's a very particular kind of like experience. Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting because you, like, wonder, you know, with that kind of type of, like, bourgeois anxiety about, like, how I have to be, like, the perfect parent and this has to be a perfect party and, like, I always have to be prepared with all of these consumable items for my infant. You know, how much of that is about, like, performance and living up to an ideal of, like, what a mother is supposed to be. And I think in Didi's case that's particularly interesting because she is the child of Jewish immigrants, So you wonder, like, as the child of immigrants growing up in Southern California, what kind of notions she absorbed from American culture about what a mother should be like. Right. And as a side note, um, Dee Dee's family is one of the most is arguably one of like the first very openly, obviously Jewish families. Yes. And And openly, obviously immigrant. Like they are explicitly Russian. Right. So, yeah, it's kind of confusing because sometimes there are some, uh, like, Hebrew I mean, words. we'll say, like, uh, Mein Gott and stuff like that, but they speak a lot of Yiddish, for yeah, sure. Yeah, like, they speak a lot of Yiddish, and some of the words, like, kinder, I think, are shared between the two. Um, yeah, between German and uh, Yiddish. So they, so they, and they tell stories about like Moses and they do very, very obviously Jewish holiday episodes, which is how mm-hmm. I first learned about Jewish holidays Yes, same. as a kid. So that's really good. And generally, generally, I think they're a positive portrayal of like yeah. Jewish immigrants because like they're cooking cultural foods like borscht and, and stroganoff and stuff. Yeah. And they're um, telling stories and the babies love it and all of the other families are totally cool with it. Like there's one episode where um, Dee's father is telling the story of Moses and leading the, the Jews from Egypt and every family ends up in this locked attic listening yeah. to this story, just like enraptured by it. And it's a really cool story about that. So yeah. And, like, also, like, breathtakingly secular in its portrayal. Like, I thought it was, like, so skillful what they did in telling, like, a biblically accurate Passover story while still keeping it secular. They never mentioned God. Not once. And in the Hanukkah episode, too. Like, they didn't mention God. It was Moses that delivered the plagues, not God, for example. They just don't bring it up. Yeah, you know, they also, just don't. They also uh, kind of like toned down the plagues. Yeah. So, 
Um, no rivets turned to blood, and the firstborns were taken away. Right. It wasn't <laughs> right. like, no, your firstborn's going to get a plague and die. Yeah. Um, and I'm pretty sure they didn't do boils. They did, um, like, another Itching animal. or something. Yeah. Lice. I, oh, I think they did lice instead yeah, of boils. Yeah, they did lice. They did, like, uh, frogs, lice, locusts. Uh, terrible beasts where they showed like lions and tigers and stuff darkness um i think that was most of them they didn't do nothing turned it didn't rain blood the river didn't turn to blood you know yeah. um, there was no raining fire yeah yeah so, and like the firstborn was taken away rather than killed right so and it wasn't goat's blood on door frames it was just red smudges yeah, it's just like just it's just a red mark, <laughs> you know. So um, yeah, the show obviously is like tailored to its audience, but it yeah. it manages to tell a lot of very interesting adult relevant stories in that context and culturally um, varied ones too. I mean, really, yeah. if you think about which it, which is groundbreaking. Dee Dee's family are really the only like culturally distinct people we see. I mean, even when Susie, right, Susie and her family, who are notable for being African-American, right, mm -hmm. as a main cast family in the early 90s, right, in the in the vein of, like, the Huxtables and, mm -hmm. like, other middle-class black families. Yeah, like, speaking of, like, bourgeois and, and, you know, a little bit of the racial politics of the show, like, first of all, they are very much like the Huxtables, like, much as everyone in this show is bourgeois, the um, the Carmichaels are even more so. Well, they like, are arguably the most wealthy. Cause yeah, they are the wealthiest. They are the most highly trained. Right. Like, they are so, the most established as a family the, of anybody. The mother, when Dee Dee is meeting um, the mother of, like, in the Carmichael family, she has, she reads off a list of accomplishments that at first you're like, wow, that's really cool. And then at the other end, you're like, wow, are they trying to make this palatable for me? Like, are they trying to set a exactly. really positive role model for black women? Or are they trying to make me like this character because they're exactly. black, but look how successful exactly. they are. And I don't yeah, and that's the racial politics is very weird because at the same time, it's like, the Carmichaels as a family are like this really positive role model with like varied personalities in their family They're all um, and things like that. They're very distinct, you know, like Susie and she has two older brothers with really distinct personalities and she has an older sister with a distinct personality. But at the same time as like they're all like very well drawn, even though you don't see them all that much. Why does the one black family have to be so much more accomplished and so much wealthier than all these white families just to exist? Well, right. I, OK, so I think it's important that we like we determine effect from intention. Yeah, I, I don't I, I don't think necessarily that the writers or the creators were doing this kind of in-depth analysis that we're doing. No, I, absolutely not. I think I have a feeling that they were just like, hey, let's put this new family on. It would be cool if they're African-American. And they already mm -hmm. had pre-existing show types, like like the Huxables, right? Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. a doctor in the family. like all, So they already had a pre-existing template that I feel like they yeah. just 
they used and that's why they did it. And I think that that, like the effect of that is both, like it's got positives and it exists as slightly problematic at the same time. It can be both. Like the world is oftentimes both things at once. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. I agree with you because like, you know, you begin to see like later, um, you know, on Hey Arnold, you see uh, Gerald. I don't know if we see his family that much, but he's a different kind of character, you know, and then you have the proud family where actually the father on the proud family is playing a similar kind of role to what Stu plays on this show. Right. So you see as time moves on, like the type of like black families and black characters that get to appear on television, like grows in diversity. And I think it's just a result of the time that even though like, yeah, there's like a black family part of the main cast and like you know they are really successful and like really positive role models like just a consequence of the time period is that in order to portray a black family on tv especially in like a kid show they have to be the huxtables you know nobody was like doing it on purpose it's just like where we were at as a society right so definitely not trying to harp on the show creators Yeah, no, no, no. I don't think that they had uh, any ill ill intent with it, you know. And and later you see Kimmy join Mm -hmm. the cast, so she's she's Japanese, and yeah, we end up with an interracial married couple, right? Which for me as a kid was really cool because my dad is American and my stepmom is Japanese. So oh, really? Okay, yeah, very cool. So that that like sort of family style, I was just like, that's cool. I totally, I was like, that's totally normal. Um, so yeah, yeah, definitely. So, um, so I'm sure like it has a really positive effect on kids in those kinds of households, you know, to just be like, Oh, Hey, like there's my family, you know, on TV. I've never seen that before. I've never seen my family. Yeah. 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 yeah, For (laughs) sure. For sure. Um, so I think like the show is generally pretty good about race stuff and you see a lot of variety in just like throughout episode plots too, just like side characters and mm-hmm. like one episode in the doctor's office, there's a baby named Hector and um, he and Tommy try and escape from getting booster shots. Mm-hmm. And in other episodes, like there are a variety of people with like culturally distinct names and that's yeah. pretty good too. And that's another thing that I think suggests California as well oh yeah Yeah. just like the cultural diversity that you see yeah just like that didn't really exist in the early 90s in a lot of parts of the country except for maybe like new york you know Um, right 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 so it was it was um and i mean the people live the studio that made the rugrats is in the town where rugrats is set so they were clearly using a lot of their personal experiences to create the show oh yeah absolutely Um, So, like, something I want to get in, um, like, while we've been talking about, like, the racial politics of the show is something that, like, is pretty similar, um, which is, like, the gender politics of the show in that they are, like, simultaneously groundbreaking and subversive for the time period, but look a little weird to us now, right? Which which a lot of we can just chalk up to, uh, like, progress, or yeah, um, for sure. like an increase in uh, consciousness about the topic. And yeah. that's understandable. Again, the same thing we said about the creators with 
race applies, I think, to gender here as well. Yeah, definitely no ill intent being had. And if anything, really positive intent. You so, know, just like things have changed since 1991. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, so the first example you'll remember is the third or second episode of the show involves a beauty pageant that is yes. for girls. And Lou, the grandpa, who is an amazing character, by the way, Fantastic. simultaneously a caricature of a World War II veteran, but also um, very positive, too. Um, he, like, the, the prize for the beauty pageant is a, sh is a boat. And he yeah, it's wants a fishing that boat. boat. And he convinces mm -hmm. Stu, let's enter Tommy as a girl into this contest. And Stu's initial reaction is kind of like, oh, Tommy in a, in a dress? That's gross. Yeah, like, um, fuck that. Not my son. But then, but then a prize, i.e. reward, comes mm -hmm. up. And then all of a sudden, economically, it's like, oh, yeah, I'll, co I'll compromise my pre-existing notions about gender for, for money. So, um, Stu kind of not setting a great thing there at the start. But then, mm -hmm. the baby, it's like Tommy himself is like, this is a dress. Like, I'm cool with this wig. I'm cool with this dress. Don't I look cute? So Yeah, for sure. Like, we see from the show as a broad perspective that one character is like, Ugh, but another character is like, awesome. And... That's pretty cool. Like, yeah. if you're a boy watching that show, you're like, oh, that is kind of cool. Um, and then let's talk about Phil and Lil. Yeah, they switch places all the time and seem to, like, care very little about the fact that, like, one is a boy and one is a girl. Like, they'll, like, they'll be like, look, we switch places all the time. And Phil will just, like, put her bow on, <laughs> you know, and get, like, treated like a... Uh, get treated like Lil and they like, just, they don't give a shit. Like so, they're like, it's completely okay. So they're simultaneously making fun of how parents can't tell twins apart. Mm -hmm. And, um, like boys and girls signals like the bow, mm -hmm. um, how like su superficial that truly is. Oh yeah, for sure. And like we, you and I discussed that like Betty, you know, like she's this character caricature of, um, you know, a second wave feminist, um, but also is like a computer programmer, which is like amazing. But in, you know, her need to sort of find a way to navigate mothering twins without just exhausting herself all of the time, will still lean back just a little bit on stereotypes of boys versus girls. She'll frequently say things to, to Dee Dee, like, well, if you had one each, you would, you would know really how different boys and girls are, and you know, or let's go, go talk ahead. about the differences between girls and boys over a cup of Java. <laughs> oh my God. It's so great. God bless Betty. Um, um, but yeah, yeah. so it, it's interesting because uh, there's one particular episode where Phil and Lil get separated and they essentially get swapped. So they think like, so Betty has Phil, but she thinks that it's Lil, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, Dee Dee has... Lil, but she thinks that it's Phil. And, you know, they go back and forth and try and find each other. There's baby shenanigans. But basically, Betty finds 
Phil, who she thinks is Lil, crying his eyes out um, because he thinks that Lil got eaten by Spike. Um, but she takes him over and she's like, you know, like Lil couldn't handle it. And she's crying her eyes out and like, excuse me, they're meant to be together. We can't separate them. And Dee Dee says, you know, well, oh, Phil was fine here. And she's like, you know, that's just um, the difference between boys and girls. So it's simultaneously like leaning on this stereotype that girls don't handle like emotional disruption or like being alone as well, but also completely invalidating it because actually the one who was crying and having a hard time handling it from that type of information, right, was Phil, was the boy. Um, so that's like this really interesting sort of like subversion well, that you, plays into it. You see that interplay with all sorts of things between like the baby's perspective and the parent's perspective. Oh um, yeah, for sure. Like the baby's invalidating lip shits and like the parent's intellectual approach to parenting. Um, oh yeah. Constantly. That kind of stuff too. And ultimately it's it's good. Like ultimately, I think it, it it's a good thing. And overall, if we look at the main cast, like baby and parent, both men and women engage in men and women activities. Um, yes, actually. So, for example, yeah. you see it with the parents, where one episode, like the women are really into football, and the men are in a kitchen making like a super football omelet, and the the men comment about how into the sports the women are and mm -hmm. like I, there there are some issues with that mostly that like the women still seem to be lauded for doing the masculine thing versus yeah the opposite. it's it's just like you know um it's a really clumsy way to subvert a trope like because it's not actually subverting it it's just inverting it like i understand why at the time it would be thought of like as a good idea. And also there's still lots of shows that do this because, you know, you just say, uh, we want to subvert the trope. How do we do that? Uh, let's invert it. Well, I mean like the men are still making an absolute mess of making this omelet and the women are being lauded for engaging in masculine behavior. So like, did you really subvert it, you know, by, by inverting it? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And all of the new cast members that get added are are, are girls. So Susie and Yeah, Kenny, which is dope. Yeah. Like, and then there's Angelica. Oh, my God. So let's talk about Angelica. Let's talk about Angelica. We need to talk about Angelica. <laughs> that also opens the door to talk about Angelica's upper middle class CEO family. Yes. Um, and all the problems that that... So if anybody's, if, if Dee Dee is kind of this well-meaning, but kind of like too ang anxious parent, but still is a really good mom, and Stu is this kind of aloof inventor, but he still loves to play with his kid, and mm -hmm. like if all the other parents are generally positive, Angelica's are the most negative. Yeah. Yeah. Not because they're bad people, exactly. No, they love her. They love her very much and want to be good parents. They do. It, that's shown several times. But unlike Dee Dee, who's at least trying to seek advice from other experts on how mm -hmm. to raise babies, the Drew and Charlotte simply fall back on, like, give her what she wants to be a yes. good parent. And yes. So naturally, like, 
early on in the show's run, Angelica is a sociopath. Like, straight Yes. Um, yes. All she like, exists like, for is to be an obstacle for the babies. She exists to torment them, and she that's what she likes to do. Legitimately, she has fun hurting them. Yeah, she will. And even further into the show, she gets a little bit more depth. But even further into the show, there will be times where Angelica comes and like, uh, so I just saw the, the chicken pox episode. Angelica tells the babies that Chucky is going to turn into chicken, uh, into a chicken for no other reason that she, than that she is bored and it will be funny to to manipulate them like it is funny to get them to believe something that is not true and watch them freak out over it you know simultaneously as the show continues on you do start to see she's not a sociopath she's just a spoiled brat yeah does love the babies she she does have the ability to empathize and understand Mm -hmm. good and bad which, yeah. in a way, makes her bad behavior worse, right? Um, but she gets downgraded from sociopath to, like, severe narcissist. Yeah. Yeah, because for, like, I would say, like, two and a half seasons, like, she's a sociopath. Like, she clearly understands what will get her in trouble, but, like, not why something is wrong. And, like, enjoys hurting people and, like, doesn't understand the feeling of others. Whereas, like, and, like, that sort of culminates with in season three, there's a run of, like, four or five episodes where we see Angelica being horrible and getting her comeuppance. And we're kind of, like, taking pleasure in seeing Angelica punished, which made me feel really weird And I think it might have made the writers feel really weird, too, because pretty much immediately after that little run of episodes, Angelica starts to get more humanized and gain depth and, like, seem to be not such a sociopath. Right? Right. And this isn't isn't an actual diagnosis. Um, Yeah. Also, like, in real life, they don't diagnose children with sociopathy. Like, she, she lacks two other key qualities to sociopathy. Um... She doesn't kill animals, mm-hmm. and we don't know if she wets her bed, but those two things are highly, highly We related. do know if she wets her bed, actually, because in the episode where uh, Chucky is learning to use the potty, he gets up in the middle of the night and goes to the potty, and then Angelica comes into the room and says that she's had an accident. Oh, well, she's three. So <laughs> um, I should state that that peeing the bed thing lasts well It's to a late age, yeah. Like a late age. Um, yes, too young. So we're just saying that she lacks empathy, like an extreme lack of empathy and an, like a, she's a sadist. I think yeah, sadist like would... all kids lack empathy up to a certain age, but with Angelica, it's extreme. Like in that way, the babies are almost an unrealistic foil because they show highly advanced moral reasoning. Oh, my God. Yeah. Like yeah. I think... Chucky does. Chucky is the moral compass of the group. Yeah, I think, okay, I kind of want to, like, save my analysis of the babies for a few minutes um, because I do want to get to, like, the political implications of the relationships of this show. But first I want to talk about, like, Angelica's parents and what they're like. Are you cool with that? So, yeah, Angelica's a spoiled brat. And um, her parents are two very particular people. They're both high-powered, money-making people. Um, Drew is an investment banker 
right? Um, but he is clearly the one who is experiencing less success and responsibility in his life because we do not meet Angelica's mom until like season three, right? Even though Drew is Stu's brother. Um, so Drew's like an investment banker who is clearly around Angelica more often and just spoils the ever bubbing shit out of her. Maybe possibly to make her feel better that her mom's not around all that much. I don't know. Who knows, right? Whereas Angelica's mom, Charlotte, is, like, the president of a division of her company and, like, constantly talking about hostile takeovers and, like, crushing the competition. She's always on the phone. She's always faxing. She's always, always working. So she... Um, she does change. She does start to become more involved in Angelica's life as the show progresses. So we see a positive change in that regard. Um, but the problem is, is that Drew doesn't provide discipline for Angelica. None. And I'm not even None. talking like spankings. I'm just talking about basic gratification withholding. Mm-hmm. And Charlotte... When when she is around is basically like, oh, just give her what she wants. Angelica, in fact, she even lauds Angelica's moxie to get what she wants because that is who Charlotte is as an yeah. adult. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really interesting because like, you know, we were saying that like early in the show, you know, like Angelica has like certain traits of sociopathy and like she is incredibly manipulative and that's something that does not ever go away. Right. And she's super manipulative of her father. She plays Drew like a fucking fiddle, like to get whatever she wants. Like that episode where he actually was punishing her for something like he told her she couldn't have like cookies or um, oh, yeah, she wouldn't eat her broccoli, right? And so she she couldn't – it wasn't even that she couldn't have desserts. She couldn't have seconds of dessert, <laughs> right? And he has this nightmare of her suing them and uh, because she says, like, you'll be sorry before they go to bed. Um, and he has a nightmare about uh, – uh, her suing them for everything and he goes and wakes her up and tells her that he's sorry and that he won't make her eat broccoli if she doesn't want to and that she can try things when she's ready right and then angelica's like crosses something off a list and is like works every time <laughs> you know like that's the kind of disciplinarian that drew is he can't even hold firm to the most minor of punishments and drew is so milk toast in his discipline that he cannot serve as a role model for his daughter. So she does not seem to admire or respect a thing about him other than his ability to be duped by her. And so we do see, perhaps because her mom isn't around very much, she actually does have respect for her mother. And, but it's the wrong kind of respect. Um, Mm -hmm. As an adult, you see that her mom is teaching her all the wrong things about other people and socializing because her mother is setting a very competitive, hostile, almost toxic, masculine sort of view for her daughter. And her daughter uses that. And ultimately, it shows the perils of us inverting like the glass ceiling by just being like, yeah, we'll just put women in high positions. But yeah, like, like corporate feminism is not like helpful. if you don't change the nature of those positions, 
if you don't address like the core cultural part that like makes people into shitheads, then mm -hmm. all you're doing is making women worse. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so you see that Angelica, you know, you'll see her have this obsession with money in certain episodes. And she seems to think that the way to like be successful in social relationships is to be able to manipulate other people into doing things for you. Right. Um, which she clearly is learning from her mom, even though you like from the way you see Charlotte interact with like her husband and um her in-laws and stuff like that. Like Charlotte's not a bad person. And like, if Charlotte's in your personal life, she's actually like pretty nice, you know? Um, but she's just so constantly working and her work is so aggressive that like, that's when what Angelica is picking up for her from her. Right. And it's definitely not a case where Charlotte's like, listen, I'm just doing, like, I don't like this. I'm doing it. Cause I have to, she, <laughs> Enjoys. She takes pleasure. Yeah, she takes pleasure in domineering, like behavior. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like she loves to yell at Jonathan. <laughs> like it's clearly and fun for her. I can't help but feel that this was intentional on the writer's part, um, because it's so obvious. I think yeah. they were. I think they were even in that age targeting this idea that like just make moms CEOs and everything will be great. But mm -hmm. it's exposing like a core issue in the family when you do that in such a simpy, simple, heavy handed way. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I agree. And I think that's really interesting. And I think that that like, that also leads me into like, there's a lot of interesting stuff about sort of like, uh, like, um, like capitalism and like political systems in the show. So like capitalism is like never anything that's like explicitly addressed, but it is something that is like an undercurrent of the show because it occurred in the nineties. And we think about, you know, the cultural context of the nineties and the way that we treated money and the way that we treated economic growth and the fact that like we have the dot com bubble and all that stuff going on. So this show without like clearly anyone ever intending it to be this way or explicitly addressing it is extremely pro-capitalist like we see the roles like charlotte is a business like president of some sort um drew is an investment banker betty is uh a computer programmer Chaz, we don't know specifically what he does but like it's something that causes him to have to take business trips and um you know the only person that we don't see with like a traditional like out of the home like capitalist type job is Stu, and that's kind of a running gag well, how and there's even an episode where they make him get a job <laughs> outside the house Dee Dee is a teacher Though. Yeah, she's yeah. a teacher. She teaches home ec, which is another thing. Like, how the fuck do they afford their house? Right. <laughs> like, they shouldn't be able to afford it. But that's neither here nor there. Um, but yeah, Dee Dee appears to teach home ec, um, <laughs> which is really interesting because you get like other women on the show who are super not in traditional roles for women. And then Dee Dee works outside the house but teaches home ec, you know, <laughs> like get more traditional, right? Yeah. And um, so ultimately, I don't know. I think you could argue that there are some like I, you could argue that there are the writers are sort of 
pro-capitalist in the way that everybody in the United States is kind of yeah. like implicitly that way. But yes. there's some people who are like trying to point out the difficulties of parenting with like super macho CEO women parents too. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I think um, because it's like, it's implicitly pro-capitalist in um, the way that like anyone, anything produced in America is going to be, you know, like, um, Stu, it seems to be that he like, he's going to measure his success by being able to finally like sell his toys and become wealthy off of it. Right. But at the same time, you'll see episodes like the gold rush where Angelica is obsessed with money and uses it to leverage the kids against each other. And it tears the friend group apart. And they realize they're like, there's no point in this. And very early in the episode, they're like, well, what's the point of the nickel? What are we going to do with it? Like, um, what we can't buy anything. We're babies. We already have everything we want. And Angelica's like, well, what about more, you know, which was like, that is not so much anti-capitalist as it is, uh, anti-materialist, anti-materialist. Right. Um, or like in the episode where they make Stu get a job outside of the house, he actually refers to himself as a wage slave, which I thought was great. And at the end of that episode, he um, it's interesting because it's kind of a mixed message. He is freed from wage slavery by ingenuity and the ability to be someone who is making money based off of the fruits of his intelligence, right? right. So it's at kind the same of time, Randian. Yeah, Isn't yeah, it? kind of. Yeah, like he gets to have power over his own life and stay at home and work on his creative pursuits and play with his son, which is fantastic. But like the way that he gets to do that is still like, oh, well, I don't need to be a wage slave and answer to someone else because like I have ingenuity and I have um, stick-to-itiveness, and so I'm going to make this invention, I'm going to make lots of money off of it, and that, that frees me from wage slavery, right? Which I think is really interesting. Um, so we have all that sort of, like, everyone lives a very typical bourgeois life, um, and you have, like, subtle anti-materialist messages, um, but, you know, everything's sort of implicitly pro-capitalist as a product of America in the 90s. However, in so, the social relationships, right? Oh, did you have something else to say? Yeah, yeah. So the, I think you, um, this is that the show very much embodies a positive aspect of human uh, social psychology, which is community. Mm -hmm. um, so <clears throat> the families on the street all know each other. They all take care of their kids. Very much embodies, as Paige said the other day, like it takes a village. Yes. And Psychology is very clear on the positive impact of community relationships on mental health, success, child rearing, like all these important factors, which as you know, we're all probably who listening, who's listening to this podcast, we're probably all disconnected to some extent from community. Um, uh -huh. We have our online friends from college and then we have nobody. <laughs> um, but no, we... Um, so this show is very much like, this is a community. This is good for people. This is a positive thing for the babies. Yeah, it's almost communal, right? Like the way that they approach childcare. Like all of the babies are like always together at someone's house. And it's like most frequently Dee Dee and Stu's house because Stu works from home and Dee Dee works at teacher's hours, 
right? So in the summer, she's home and she gets home earlier in the day. But, you know, if they're busy, like Chaz will take them or or Betty and Howard will take them um, or even sometimes the Carmichaels or Drew or Pop. You know, all of these adults are working in concert to raise these children. And they frequently will talk with each other about, like, I'm having this problem with Tommy. Chaz, has Chucky ever been through that? Yeah, this is what I did. Maybe you could try that with Tommy. And while the plans usually fail, because the parents are hilariously (laughs) inept in this show compared to the babies. Yes. um, (laughs) That, um, like, here in the last minute, we can talk about how they do sort of start to strain that relationship. Mm -hmm. Like... They do, parents do make remarks about like, oh, are they going to ask me to do it again? Because people do slowly become sort of entitled to the care of others, which I think happens in any long-term like exchange relationship like that is that sometimes people will assume that you're okay with something when you're not. And I don't think that's bad. I think that's just a realistic take on how friends get sometimes. Oh, yeah. It's just like, you know, I think one time Stu's like, oh, well, like the kids have all been with us like every day for two weeks. Like, can someone else take them today? (laughs) You know, um, which is like reasonable. Like that happens sometimes. And that's a that's a problem with communication that lots of adults have, you know, um, which I think is a realistic way to show it. Whereas with the babies and their social relationship, they don't have problems with communication. Like, in fact, the baby's social structure the babies, not Angelica. Angelica is incredibly authoritarian, but the babies are so democratic that it is almost anarchic, right? We think of Tommy as the leader, but it's mostly because Tommy is the main character. He has lots of like big ideas and is the one to say like, come on guys, but they always consent around what they're going to do. Tommy will say, let's do this. And Phil and Lil will say like, oh my gosh, yeah, that's a good idea. And Chucky will say, I don't know, that's really not such a good idea. Why not, Chucky? Well, because these bad things could happen. Well, Chucky, what about these other good things, right? And he always has reservations, but ultimately agrees. Like they form decisions, they make decisions by consensus in the group of babies, which is fucking fascinating. Yeah, and... We may dig into that probably next time a little bit. That might be our starting topic because we are running up the time here. And we should let our listeners know that Mm -hmm. this is typically going to be between 50 50 minutes to an hour and 10 minutes. This first episode went a little bit longer because we had to introduce the show. Yeah. Um, So typically speaking, we'll be releasing... Like if bi-weekly, bi-weekly, unless we're working on the same show. And then because we may have already had all the material time to watch stuff, we may release on a slightly earlier every week schedule till we're finished. Yeah. 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 And I think we might have like a little bit more to say about Rugrats. Like I'm not certain that we'll do another entire hour on Rugrats next weekend, but we might do like maybe like a half, excuse me, like a half hour or something to sort of wrap up our discussion on it. Um, You know, Chris and I will discuss. (laughs) 
Um, it'll happen like when it happens, but yeah, like I think we've hit a lot of the major points that we were wanting to address about the content of Rugrats and we'll probably dig a little bit more into stuff like social relationships and animation in the next episode. Yes. Yes. That sounds good to me. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, this has been the animates. Mm hmm. Uh, I'm Paige. I'm Chris. Uh, thank you for listening. We'll come up with a better tagline at some point. All right. Bye. Bye. If you want to see updates from us, uh, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at at Animates. Um, we also have a SoundCloud, Animates Podcast. Um, and if you're listening to this on iTunes, please subscribe and rate the podcast because it'll help other people find our show.